Welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm your host, Mo, and today's guest is Michael Pearson. I had to record this introduction after our interview because we got right into it. Um, so please enjoy. Great. Um, did, before we get started, do, did you um, think of a quote or a mantra that you use? Yeah, actually, I was thinking of this. No, I, uh, I realize how this has changed over the years. But one of the passages of scripture that I've always liked, uh, it has to do with in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. It's that sense of abide, abide in me and I in you. Um, and that whole sense of abiding in Christ. Um, and this gets played out in a couple of different ways. James Stewart, who was a New Testament theologian back long before you were born, um, said the heart of St. Paul's theology was union with Christ. And then I remember, I think it was the first time I ever attended an Episcopal service in the United States. And it was back in 1973. I was at Princeton Seminary. And they, um, this was a Trinity church, right? Right across the street from the seminary. And they used the 28 Book of Common Prayer for that service because they didn't have the new prayer book at that time. It was all in transition. Mm. Um, and there were... I so remember the phrase that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. And it appears twice, once in the Eucharistic prayer itself, and then something called the prayer of humble access. Um, but it, it all spoke about that sense of union or sharing in the life of Christ. And so I have to say, that's my, the thing that I think about all the time. And in some way, I think, is at the heart of my spirituality? Mm. Uh, and how that gets lived out, because not only is it talk about your relationship with Christ, but if if other people are part of that same body, and it also talks about your relationship to other people, um, even things like the Lord's Prayer, our Father. Well, who are you referring to when you say our Father? You can imagine it as you and Jesus's. So you and Jesus are say, staying, you know, standing side by side. And he says, join me, but let us say our father. Or you think about walking down the streets of Providence and you say the Lord's Prayer, our father, then it becomes everybody around you, your common humanity, or all of us together, Jesus and you and your neighbor and the universal church, we say our father. Um, so that whole, that whole sense of union with Christ and sharing, abiding in Christ is kind of I'm not sure that's a mantra, but it's at least an image um, that really, I think, is at the heart of my spiritual life right now. Mm, that's beautiful. And so let's give the listeners um, a little bit of background on who you are. Okay. Um, why don't you tell us about, you know, what led you to the church and um, how you became a priest? Okay. Well, um, 
I have to say, I've always been, from my earliest memories, I've always thought of myself as being part of the church. Mm -hmm. um, I was raised in an American Baptist church in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, and we went to church every Sunday. Um, went to Sunday school. My parents had their Sunday school class. I had Sunday school class. So church was just something that has always been part of my life. And I have to say, I've never, and it's always been a positive experience. So it was always a place that I enjoyed going. Um, also, I enjoyed singing. And Baptists have good hymns, and I always enjoyed singing them. And oh. we'd have different, we never had seasons in the church, um, but we'd have potluck suppers. And I always got to eat things at the potluck suppers that I never got at home. So that was another reason to go. And also, I would see people on Sunday that I didn't see during the rest of the week and people I enjoyed. Um, and then often we would go out to lunch afterwards. So it wasn't just, you know, church, but we'd have Sunday school, then church, and then lunch. And it was just a wonderful way to spend the Sabbath. Mm. Um, so I've always enjoyed church. Um, now, I have to say, I never knew anything about the Episcopal Church. I guess the first thing I knew even though I'm not sure I knew it was an Episcopal church or what Episcopal church meant, was that there was one on the 10th hole of the golf course that I used to play on. Oh, wow. And it was it. If you go to the 10th hole, just beyond that was, um, well, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember the name of the church in Dearborn. Um, but it wasn't, I've heard about it since, but I never went into it. Um, I think the first Episcopalian I ever was conscious of who actually talked about being an Episcopalian was somebody I knew when I was in college. And he was a, the Carolyn Noor of the college I went to. And um, he and I became friends. And so he introduced me to the Episcopal chaplain um, at the college. And I think I may have gone to one service uh, while I was there. Normally, I was just in the, the university chapel every Sunday. Um, but at some point, it was during my sophomore year, um, I had this sense of being called by God into the ministry. So that would have been in the fall of 1969. Now, what that meant, I had no clue what that meant. Uh, at that point, I had a feeling I wasn't a Baptist anymore. I knew I was a Christian of some flavor, but I figured I would figure out along the way. So I talked to some people at my university and they you know recommended some things I might want to study and things like that but then my senior year I decided to go off to seminary um, and I had applied I guess because I was still a Baptist I applied to Southern Seminary down in Louisville but where I really wanted to go was the University of Edinburgh in Scotland um, mm. because one of my professors at my college um, had gone there and he recommended the place so I decided to go off to um the University of Edinburgh. So I, after I graduated from college in May of 1972, um, I went off that fall to the University of Edinburgh. Um, and I guess it was there that I was beginning to be introduced to a wider church. Um, a friend of mine there, Tom Davison Kelly, uh, was of the, uh, he was a member of the Church of Scotland. As part of our pastoral studies class, we went around to different churches in town. Um, 
And at some point along the line, I discovered the Eucharist. And that really became the focus for me. Um, again, going, I think, back to this idea of union with Christ, that in, in the sacrament, you receive the body and blood of Christ. Um, and at one time, I thought about becoming a Roman Catholic, um, because of that sense of tradition and the centrality of the Eucharist. But I had no sense of call to celibacy. So that didn't seem to be the place I should go. Um, I had... I didn't have this professor, but there was a priest, no, he actually was a layperson at the time, John Zazoulis, um, who was an Orthodox layman. And we went to his church one Sunday. Um, and it was so different uh, from anything. And also, I didn't think I could grow a beard like most Orthodox <laughs> priests have. Um, and I didn't speak Greek or Russian. Um, I could read a little bit of Greek, but, you know, languages were never my thing. Mm. And then I started going to uh, Episcopal Church of Scotland um, parish. And it, I remember going, particularly starting on the Easter vigil. Now, I didn't realize it was an Easter vigil at times. That's a great service to It was wonderful. <laughs> but I had no clue about what it was all about. Mm-hmm. It was only a couple of years later when I was doing it again that I said to myself, that's what I experienced back in Scotland. Because I remember gathering around the font and hearing all these readings and then the lights going on and we going up to the altar. But I had no clue at the time what this was all about, what, it, you know, the deeper significance of all of this. So in some ways, I was like that stranger coming through the doors and realizing that you liked something, but you really couldn't articulate what exactly it was that you were experiencing. And there was a part of me which uh, I have to say I loved Edinburgh. Um, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Um, I haven't gone back as many times as I'd like to. Mm. Uh, but in many ways, it, it set me off on a different course because it's really there that I discovered the Episcopal Church. Mm. Um, so I ended up, I transferred back to Princeton Seminary. So I started there in the fall of 1973 um, and started going to Trinity Church, which was right across the street from the seminary. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my first year, I, then I my parents had moved from Michigan to North Carolina um, in 1970. So I went and talked to the bishop, the bishop co-adjutor at the time, Bishop Weinauer, um, who was the bishop of Western North Carolina, and asked him about ordination. And um, he said, fine. He knew some of the people that I knew at Princeton and different places. Um, he said, you know, finish at Princeton and, and then take a year off and then you can go up to General Seminary in New York because uh, he had been a professor at general before he got elected bishop. Um, so that's what I did. I finished Princeton. I was confirmed in 73, uh, finished Princeton in 75, then spent a year doing CPE, um, then was getting ready to be ordained to the diaconate in September of 1977. Oh, right. And so, so that used to be like a pretty common path for people seeking ordination, right? To become ordained as a deacon first. That's what, yes. That's what you always had to do. There's no other way of doing it. I see. And is that still the case now? I think, yes. There's some discussion about whether you can be ordained straight to the priesthood or not. Mm. Uh, Or is there still what was called the transitional diaconate? Right. And there's a big debate about whether that's necessary or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's another topic that you should have a, a group discussion of that because there are some people who feel very strongly that 
the tr transitional diaconate is not really important. Mm. Um, I happen to be on the other side. I have to think that I still take my diaconal vocation seriously. Uh, yeah. and my vows I made at that point seriously, but that's another whole discussion. Totally. Um, don't get don't get started tonight. Um, <laughs> totally. Well, I think you know um, whether it's called transitional deacon or 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 not. Um, you know that part of service, the bringing the church outward and yes. to people, um, I think is really important. And um, it makes total sense to me that you say your diaconate vows are near and dear to your heart because, you know, just based on, you know, what I know about you and all the different parishes you've served for. And even now um, you're technically retired, um, but I. We'll get on to that question. Yeah, exactly. I get what the sense that, that you're exactly. What does that mean? So, um, so, you know, I can see you being really intentional and, and taking that to heart. Um, your the, the deacon part of your training, which is really cool. Well, I have to say that that's when I look at some of the different parishes I've been in, um, particularly over at the Epiphany in, in the West End of Providence, mm. I don't understand how you could separate priesthood and diaconal ministry. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just don't get it. Um, and I mean, I understand you'd be doing a lot of the same things, but there's the, I don't see how you do priesthood without servanthood. Mm -hmm. and that's my that's my big thing. Yeah. I, mean, I, I just don't get it. Um, I mean, I understand liturgically, you don't have to be a deacon to be a servant. I mean, all of us are called a servanthood. So, I right. mean, but if you use that logic, why do you even have the diaconate if baptism is your call to servanthood? Um, but anyway, that's another right. whole conversation. That totally. So let's talk really about, let's talk about your service in Rhode Island and all the different parishes you've been at. First of all, I remember the night I walked into the church. Uh, it was a Sunday night. And I remember that I come, remember coming, came up by the train. And I remember as you came into the old train station, mm -hmm. you look up onto the, the hills around the east side and it just looks so neat. Um, remember coming to St. Stephen's, walking in the back door of the church, and the incense had just settled. The sun was coming through, just wonderful. I can't say coming through, because it was probably still light coming through, but it wasn't the direct sunlight. Um, and it was just beautiful. Mm. I still remember the smell. And I, it felt like home. Mm. And I said, you know, I said, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to come here or not, but this really, I'd love to be here. And the next day, he offers me the position. And I remember walking around the east side, walking down to the river. Um, and it was just the most wonderful feeling. St. Stephen's, for people who don't know, is situated right like smack dab in the middle of Brown University campus. Right. So you have a lot of students and you have yep. people from all different places in the world. Um, but then you also have, you know, East Siders, families. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, the makeup of that congregation and, and what was important about services there? Well, again... Liturgically, it was very much in the Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had a daily Eucharist, a daily Mass. Um, we used to do the daily offices there every day. Um, now, fortunately, we had enough clergy um, because they had the rector, myself, and then David Ames was the Episcopal chaplain at Brown. And then the financial director at Brown, um, Alan Maynard, was also an Episcopal priest. So there'd be four of us. And all of us took services. Mostly it was Father Merchant and myself. 
but Father Maynard would take a service once a week. David Ames had two services there. Um, and there was, I have to say, we represented the whole breadth, or just about the whole breadth of the Episcopal Church. We had no women. Uh, but in terms of theologically, mm. we went from a very liberal position to a fairly conservative position. And we all got along well together. And we, and we respect, that's the thing which I have to say is we respected each other. And that's really what made it, again, such a powerful experience for me. Um, that you could disagree about things, but you could work together because there's always something more. Mm. You might have your own personal opinions, but you are part of, you're in this together. And I have to say that was, at least among the clergy, um, that was very important. And it, it brought you an openness also to people that you would meet because you'd never know where people are coming from. Mm -hmm. um, you can come from very liberal or very conservative positions on issues. But again, it wasn't the most important thing. It's not what drew you to the parish. There was something beyond that, which I like to think was God, Jesus. You know, <laughs> um, and you all end up there together. Um, and you can work together. Also, something that um, Livy Merchant had brought to the diocese was Curcio. And in my perspective, I have to say, from my perspective, that had a powerful impact on the whole diocese. Because, what is that? Pardon me? What is that? Curcio? Yeah. It was a renewal weekend. It was a four-day weekend, Thursday night through Sunday afternoon. And it was essentially, I think, Curcio means a short course in Christianity. Mm, okay. And Livy had experienced it down in Texas, and he wanted to bring it here. Um, now, the way it was introduced is it comes through the Catholic Church. So um, the first Curcio, I think there were only five people on the weekend plus the team, which may have been about a dozen people. Um, and it was, it was a course of, I think, 14 talks and a lot of fun, a lot of singing. Um, but what it did, the second is that Livy was, the, was involved in the first four. And then I didn't really join one of the teams until number five, which was probably two or three years into it. Um, but by the fifth one, you had probably 35 people on each weekend. And they were coming from all parts of the diocese. And you also had clergy from different parishes within the diocese. And what this did, and it wasn't the intended purpose, the intended purpose was just spiritual renewal. Mm -hmm. But inadvertently what it did was to break down all the barriers between parishes. So you knew people from Grace Church or Trinity Newport or Christchurch Westerly. And prior to, and also clergy got to know one another. Because up to this point, one of the difficult things about being a parish priest is you tend to be very parochial. Mm -hmm. uh, you get stuck in your own parish. Here, you're for, forced to work with clergy from around the diocese. And again, from a perspective of a more Catholic-oriented person, the Crucio here was very Catholic-oriented. So you'd, you'd do Stations of the Cross. Mm. Um, you'd have talk about confession, um, um, quiet times in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, all these things that are part of a Catholic spirituality. Now, coming from St. Stephen's, 
which had all those things, but was only had one kind of music, which was fairly traditional. On Crescio, they did all kinds of renewal music. So people who wished they had some of that in the church, they could find an outlet for it on Crescio. And Crescios then would meet so they could go back and have that kind of experience, but then come back into the church. For some other parishes whose parish spirituality wasn't particularly Catholic, it caused some issues. Because people would say, well, why can't we do stations across here at Trinity Newport Mm. or some other parish or Grace Church downtown? Now, you might do it now, but back in the 70s, that was not. Grace Church was much more middle of the road or low church. At least historically, that's what they were. Mm -hmm. So it caused some friction in some parishes. But in the more Catholic parishes, it just reinforced the spirituality of the place. Um, And it provided an outlet for people who wanted something a little more contemporary, too. Mm. Um, So I think over the course of about six or seven years, it had a profound impact upon the Diocese of Rhode Island. Um, But then, like all things, it ran its course. Um, By the time I left in 89, so I've been going on probably about 12 years, you were getting fewer and fewer people going to Curcio. Mm -hmm. First of all, because so many people had already gone through. But while while it was going on, um, it, it was certainly a powerful influence. And, and again, it helped things at St. Stephen's that people who might have gone on a Crisio wanted to get back together. So they come to one of the weekday services. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's how, that's how we got, that's how I got to start on Crisio, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I love this notion of people from all different backgrounds and, you know, I guess thoughts on theology and church and, right. Um, coming together and going through this process, even if you come from a more low church background, you know, going through Crisil. But I think people enjoy, enjoy being exposed to different ways of worship and learning about the church. And um, yeah, it, it starts that conversation between people and, and conversations definitely, you know, an important well, thing to keep going. <laughs> what's fascinating to me is with the 79 prayer book, Every parish is a Catholic parish. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, is the Eucharist is the central worship service on Sunday morning. Um, I will sometimes, during July, I often supply a Church of the Redeemer on Hope Street. Um, when I have a Sunday off from St. Stephen's, I'll often go to Grace Church because I, I know some people there. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy Jonathan. So I'll go there. Um, then I supply at a number of churches, which we may get to a little bit later. But from my perspective, I'm doing the same thing in each of those parishes. Now, I may have incense at St. Stephen's, and you may not have incense at Grace. But that's not really what makes an Anglo-Catholic parish is whether they have incense or not. Mm-hmm. It's the centrality of the Eucharist. And that was not the case at um, Grace Church back when I came to Providence in 1977. It certainly wasn't the case at Grace Church in 1900 where the central worship service on Sunday morning would have been morning prayer. Um, And I'd be interesting to know when Grace Church added a weekday Eucharist. Mm. Um, Now, the 79 prayer book, if you want to talk about historically between the Catholic, Anglo-Catholics, low church, broad church, the Anglo-Catholics won hands down. (laughs) Because it puts, first of all, it puts the Eucharist as the central worship service on Sunday mornings, states it. I don't know. I knew somebody back in one of my 
my third parish, he was an old low churchman and he loved morning prayer. Um, there was no place for him to go to experience it because mm. there was no parish in the area that did it. Um, if you look at Holy Week, the prayer book has all the Holy Week services. Back in 1977, very few parishes did Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, Easter Day. Mm-hmm. Now it's not unusual for a parish to do all of those. Um, some parishes never imposed ashes on Ash Wednesday. Um, there's a priest I knew, wonderful priest back in Kentucky. Um, he had never imposed ashes during the 30 some odd years of his ministry. But then the new prayer book came in. He started doing it. He never would have thought about himself as a Catholic Episcopalian. Mm. But he was doing stuff that somebody 50 years earlier would have called a rabid Anglo-Catholic. Eucharist every Sunday, imposing ashes, having an Easter vigil. I mean, the church has changed. Do you think it's unifying for you know, all those churches, I think the Book of Common Prayer is often lauded as this, this, um, this book that anywhere in the world, you can go to an Episcopalian or an Anglican church, and you can find a familiar service, and that can bring comfort, and that can bring tradition and ritual. So um, I guess I'm wondering your thoughts on, on what that book did to unify all these different services. Now, I think there can become a problem when you become strictly a Eucharistic church and it doesn't really fit your spirituality. Mm. So there's a certain sense in which I like the fact that parishes are doing morning prayer now online or morning prayers being morning and evening prayer in Compline, some parishes. Mm -hmm. They're doing that much more often trying to gather people. And there's that morning, that daily office tradition is also one that I hope doesn't get lost. So we will find the balance that we want to between daily office and Eucharist. Now, if you have in big places, uh, when you have enough clergy and people, you have the daily offices, the morning prayer in the morning, the Eucharist, evening prayer, maybe even Compline. becomes like really what Anglican spirituality is, is Benedictine spirituality, which is that regular keeping the daily office and then in the centrality of the Eucharist. Uh, Now, most parishes aren't big enough to be able to do that. But that's really, that's the ideal, I think, of Mm. what Anglican spirituality really is about. Because it then focuses on scripture, the reading of the daily offices, um, the Eucharist, sense of being united with Christ. It's also common prayer. So it's stuff you do together. Common prayer is important because it's what we do together. The, the challenge at times is when you, is how do you add your own individual aspect to it? How does it become not just the liturgy of the church, but also your own prayer? And somehow you have to find an outlet for that too. Um, I mean, I, I know in terms of the Anglo-Catholic tradition, you can just get lost and this is how it's always been done. And it becomes sort of dry and, you know, just routine. And that's a downside of having a prayer book tradition. But the other side of it is that you don't just say the words, but the words become 
start forming you in what it's getting at. And I mean, when I do a, use the prayer book, I'm always, I, maybe I shouldn't do this, but my mind will wander when I say a certain phrase or word. And you, even though you have to go on and continue, your mind is sort of staying on those phrases. And again, it becomes kind of a personal moment about what this faith is all about. Because, and, and the other thing is, it's also the faith of the church. Um, I may get into this a little bit later, but it's not so much, I'm a priest, but I'm a priest in the church. So it's not, I have my own individual faith. I'm an individual Christian, but I have vocation to serve into something larger. And I'm a priest of the church. And so you have to honor both of those things, mm. who you are individually, but also I function in a larger context. Um, and I represent something that's larger than just myself. I always hate the idea that, you, you know, you're interested in my faith. Well, my faith can be, you know, all over the place. But somehow I represent, and what I talk about is the faith of the church, how it's received the gospel down through the ages. And I'll have my own thoughts about what's impressed me or how it strikes me. But if you get lost into me at times, I mean, it's not going to take you very far. Um, so it's always trying to find that balance. I'm not sure that doesn't answer your question, but I think that's really, I mean, you've really spoken to me here because I think that's something that comes up in my own brain and in my own spiritual practice is where, where in this service that we recite every week, you know, where do I feel, you know, the faith and the I guess the Holy spirit in being a part of this common prayer and where do I find myself and where, where do I find how that informs my life, my decisions, my, my actions? Um, how, as you have, you know, been a priest for so long and in so many different parishes, can you speak a little bit more to how you have, personalize that for yourself while still being a part of this this church well you know it's interesting being let me go back from being retired now let's right. can we move on to that question yeah sure because uh, first of all i'm a priest forever yeah after the order of melchizedek so i'm a priest forever i only retired from i can't say for having to earn my living but in some ways, that's the case. I mean, I get reimbursed for doing services, but mm -hmm. um, I retired from being rector of a parish. I will never be the rector of another parish. Mm -hmm. And it's something I thank God for every day that um, I'm beyond that. I simply don't have the energy to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I retired from being the rector or a full-time associate at any parish. I can now put myself more at the service of the wider church. And so that's what I do. Um, since I've been back, um, I, I came, we moved, I retired at the end of 2012. We moved to Rhode Island in 2000, June, 2013. I think the first commitment I made, I think it was at the Church of the Redeemer, mm -hmm. was when Father Patrick Campbell was away for July. So I took the Redeemer. I supplied for him for a month. And 
I'd only been into that church once before, I think. And it was only two miles from St. Stephen's. But I knew nothing, I, I knew nothing about it. Um, and I discovered a wonderful congregation. Um, now it was, you know, I did what Father Patrick does there. And again, I did some, didn't do some things that I do up at St. Stephen's, some of the manual actions that you do when you celebrate the Eucharist, because I realized it may not be familiar to them. So why put them through all this? Um, then in November of that year, I became, uh, I took three years, pardon me, three months at St. Paul's in Pawtucket. Again, a very different parish, um, liturgically very different, traditionally more like Grace Church, more of a traditional low church parish. Um, but you discover people and you discover people who are being formed by the prayer book. And that's the thing you discover. And what I've been able to experience over the last now six years is being around in many more parishes, um, all people being formed by the Book of Common Prayer. Some at times doing liturgies, particularly if it's an evening liturgy, much more free formed than I would ever create for myself. But it's in part of that prayer book tradition that allows some liturgical innovation and creation. Um, and it's, again, I see myself more, as, I guess I really thought of myself more as a priest of the church now um, than I did before. Mm. Because I'm experiencing many more parishes than the ones that I'm naturally drawn to. Um, some of these parishes, I would probably say, you know, I love the people here, um, but liturgically, it's not something that really, I prefer other things. Mm -hmm. We all have our personal preferences. Right. But then I enjoy meeting the people and I'm still using that prayer book. <laughs> um, and so whether other people think I'm doing something different, I don't see myself doing anything different. You know, I may be facing the people, I may be facing the, um, you know, away from the people. Uh, I may be wearing chasubles, I may not be wearing a chasuble. Um, you know, it's just, I'm doing what the church does. Mm. And what do you think it will look like when you stop holding services, you know, being a fill-in priest as well? What, what does it look like then? Well, probably I, I will do this as long, first of all, as people would like me to do it. Mm. Because let, let me tell you, I had two experiences when I, and I'll tell you about, they came at the same time, but I'll have two experiences. Uh, I was standing in the office of St. Stephen's shortly after I was ordained to the diaconate. And um, someone was in the office who had gone through some very difficult things. They were not in good shape. And two thoughts occurred to me. The first thought was, if I ever get into trouble, I hope I have the courage to ask for help. The second thing was, I hope I know it's time to leave before people know it's time for me to leave. Now, I'm going to take that second part. The last thing I want people to do is to say, oh, Father Pearson, he stumbles up there. He, he's, he's lost it. When is he going to give up? I never want to get to the point where people say, you know, he really should stop doing this because he can't do it. Can't really do it. 
Mm. So, and that's going to be a very sad point, but it's, it's going to happen. I mean, you may not think about aging at your age, but at the age of 70, I do see it happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that time will come um, or people will stop calling because <laughs> they, they don't trust you to be there on a Sunday morning. You forget that you had a service. <laughs> don't show up. Um, no. I mean, things like that stuff, stuff happens mm-hmm. or your license is taken away and you can't drive there. Mm. Um, I mean, that's my future. Um, and it will happen. And I just hope that I know when it's time to stop before other people know it's time for me to stop. So when you get to that point and you're not holding services anymore, you know, at that point, what do you think God's role in your daily life looks like? Well, um, I'll answer that in two ways. First of all, um, I remember being at the Redeemer. This was shortly after. So it had to be probably in either 2013 or 14. But I remember, I think it was after the eight o'clock service. And there's part of the post-communion prayer is send us forth into the world to do the work you've given us to do. Mm. And I, the thought occurred to me, sort of prayer, is what is the work you want me to do now? And there's always things you can do. It may not be conducting services, but there's always work you can do. So what does that look like? And just to make that part of your prayer. Um, also, in the ordination vows, you, you say you'll be a person of prayer. So, I mean, I try to do the morning prayer and Compline every day. Um, so I can do those for as long as, you know, my hands can hold a prayer book. Um, as long as my mind knows that it's what I'm doing is saying prayers rather than just, you know, if I get the mention or something like that. But then um, my, I'll have limitations to what I can do. But I can always pray for people. I can mm. always join in the church's prayer. Um, I mean, those things will always continue for as long as I can. I'm on this earth. Mm. So in that sense, being a priest, I'll be a priest until either the church tells me not to be or until I die. And in part of that, I was thinking part of this is connected with where does God's, um, where does God's role in your go in your daily life? There's a sense in which actually I'm, I'm freer to ask those questions now than I'm, when I was a rector of a parish. Because at times you can get so caught up in things you have to do, um, raising money, worry about the boiler, um, you know, all the, all the kinds of stuff that the energy you spend on running a parish. And rather than having the time to say, you know, what does it mean to, for me to follow Jesus today? What does this look like? Um, in some sense, I'm freer to, to do that now than I was before. And I'm enjoying it. It's also a challenge, too, because you do have more time to think about these things. Hmm. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I just had such a great time chatting with you and hearing about your experiences. So, yeah. Well, I've had, I must tell you, blessed life. And uh, I, I look back actually to that Friday afternoon in, in New York City when I was getting ready to send off my letter to England or decided to come up for a second interview at St. Stephen's. And to think 
you know, I was, I was privileged to serve in five parishes, either as curate or, um, you know, rector of a parish. Had lots of wonderful people. Um, and then I feel very blessed about being black here in Rhode Island. Um, I mean, we, we're a quirky little state, <laughs> but I love it. Um, and I really love the people of the parishes and God has certainly blessed me richly mm. um, here and during all these years of ministry. So who knows where the future will lead, but God is good. So we'll keep on going. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nicely. We would like to thank Mario Aconde and Jack Zornado for the music, Taylor Wilkie and Ivy Swinsky, our producers, as well as our guests today. Follow us at Tea Time Theology on all social medias. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I Thou in my dwelling and